Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Jim Bloom. Jim's career in the movie and entertainment industries began when he worked with George Lucas on American Graffiti. Soon after, he became an assistant director, working alongside many noted filmmakers, including Francis Ford Coppola on The Conversation, Robert Altman on Thieves Like Us, Sam Peckinpah on The Killer Elite, Steven Spielberg on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Hal Ashby on Bound for Glory and Coming Home, Matthew Robbins on Corvette Summer, and Phil Kaufman on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He rejoined George Lucas to become an associate producer on The Empire Strikes Back and the first general manager of ILM. Following this, he became a co-producer on Return of the Jedi. He produced Warning Sign for 20th Century Fox and Fires Within, directed by Gillian Armstrong at MGM. He has also developed movies with Carol Ballard, Volker Schlondorf, Warren Beatty, George Miller, and Guillermo del Toro. In addition to being a producer, Jim has worked as a creative executive at Sony Pictures, leading development of production of two business units, including IMAX 3D movies, including Across the Sea of Time and Wings of Courage, directed by Jean-Jacques Anneau, and interactive movies. He also worked at Electronic Arts, where he was recruited to help leverage EA Entertainment Properties into EA TV, an interactive television venture. He later helped found an interactive games company with lead funding from Kleiner Perkins. Jim, that was a very long, but a very impressive bio. I'm in awe of what I just read. Thank you for listening to me read all that. My pleasure. It's an honor to talk to you. We're really excited to have you here. My first question is always the same. Where are you in the world? I want to assume, based on your credits, that you're on the West Coast. Am I right? Am I wrong? I'm on the West Coast. I'm in Northern California, not Southern California. I really spent most of my career living in Northern California, though my career has taken me all over the world to live in different places. But I'm up north, and I live in a small town called Point Race Station, which is right next door to the uh, Point Race National Seashore. So it's actually a very beautiful part of West Marin, and we're approximately, oh, about 50 minutes outside of San Francisco. So, you know, quite close and, you know, within the metropolitan San Francisco Bay Area. But before we came out here, I lived for about 45, 50 years in Berkeley, California, but spent a good deal of my time traveling around to other places as well as, you know, at different points in my career. I want to hear more about your career, your origin story, your process. Before we get into all that, let's talk now. Right now, there's a pandemic going on, quarantine. How has that affected you? How has that affected the entertainment industry, the film industry? Because I'm semi-retired, the pandemic has just affected me personally the same way it's affected everyone else who I speak to. And, and in particular, you know, perhaps more so or not of people of my age, I'm in my, you know, late 60s, you know, such that we have to be very careful because we don't want to get sick because we're sort of in that age range where, you know, get sick, maybe you'll die kind of situation. And nobody wants to be sick anywhere. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. 
As far as the entertainment industry, I think it's been pretty interesting because I think it has, from my perspective, accelerated the demise of the theatrical experience. Movie theaters, movie theater companies are going out of business quickly. And I honestly don't think it'll ever be the same. And I've seen this change happening ever since the uh, early, you know, if I were to look back, you know, you could sort of see it coming back in the, you know, the early, you know, VHS days when, you know, movies started going on tape and Blockbuster started opening up. And then from there, historically speaking, you kind of consider the evolution of TV viewing into the home market with large screen televisions and home sound systems becoming so wonderful that it's like, well, why go to the movies anymore? We'll just watch at home. But I think that's probably more true of a particular demographic, which would be an older demographic. It always used to be fun to go to the movie theaters and see certain movies on a big screen. You know, I'd always want to see Star Wars on a big screen and other films like that, you know, big, big theatrical screening events, you know, but sort of smaller, more intimate stories. I'm actually quite happy to watch them on home. And after I became a parent, you know, honestly, it became a lot easier just to watch a movie at home. It's like, what I, you know, I've got to go hire a babysitter. I've got to do something with my son. You know, that's going to cost X dollars. Well, I go out to the movies, I go to the movies and it's, you know, 20 bucks for tickets and five bucks for parking and another $15 for popcorn and a drink. And before you're done, you drop 50 bucks. And it's like, you know, and then, you know, you're sitting down to people and they're eating hot dogs and tacos. And you not only get to watch the movie, but you sort of get that sensory, you know, oleofactorial experience of somebody else's dinner, you know, wafting up from the seat next to you, not to mention the sticky floors and the popcorn all over the seats. And, you know, it's like, forget it. I think I'll just watch at home. And I mean, I sort of believe that now more so than ever. Though, I will say that anytime, you know, I do get a chance to watch a movie at Skywalker Ranch or I go to the Motion Picture Academy, I'm always happy to do that. Because when you can see a movie the way it's supposed to be seen, and you're looking at a pristine print with a, you know, a beautiful sound system, it's just a great experience. So, I mean, you know, it sounds a little snobby, but I guess it's true, as opposed to running down to, you know, the local neighborhood multiplex where, you know, oftentimes the screen is not much bigger than my TV set at home. Getting back to your original question, I think the pandemic has really accelerated that. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens to the theater business, you know, going forward, particularly with what's going on with streaming right now and day and day. You know, what Warner Brothers did a few months ago, what Universal is doing now. And I'm kind of surprised it's taken so long to actually get to this point, but the pandemic has really accelerated that. And I think it will, you know, that'll continue in the future that I, you know, I wonder four or five years from now what's going to happen. You know, the other question is how does that change it from a creative point of view, you know, and from a writer's point of view? And I think there are going to be far fewer movies being made and a lot more attention being paid to streaming, you know, in streaming series is I think what I mean, you know, where you're, you've got, you know, multi-episode type entertainment that you're watching, as opposed to just a two-hour feature. You can tell a much longer story, but, you know, it, I'm sure it'll be a combination of, of the two going forward. Is there one movie-going experience in the theater that stands out to you? Perhaps something that you didn't work on and perhaps something you did work on? You know, I think probably, I didn't work on the first Star Wars, and that certainly stood out for me. I knew about it and had seen production stills of it before the movie came out because I was close to George and the first producer, Gary Kurtz. And I remember American Graffiti was the first movie I ever worked on. And because of that, I worked with George and Gary, and I was 19 
when I got hired on to that show. So I, you know, 19 years old, I was like, you know, wide eyed and eager and wanting to learn about the movie business. And, you know, Gary and George became mentors to me in my career. And I always stayed in touch with them. And I remember before Star Wars came out in 77, I had just finished working on Coming Home with Hal Ashby. And I was a second assistant director. And I was going on later that summer to be a first assistant director. And I was very young. I was only 24. But I was working with a director named Matthew Robbins. And the picture was Corvette Summer. And it starred Mark Hamill and Annie Potts. And it was Matthew's first movie as a director. He and his writing partner, who was the producer, a gentleman named Hal Barwood, had written Corvette Summer. They were making it for MGM. And I had met Hal and Matthew. Initially, when they came in to do some uncredited script work on Close Encounters, because as we were getting close to shooting and as they were finishing pages, they were like flying out of Stephen's office into my hands and from my hands, you know, to the production team and everybody else to sort of figure out, well, what aren't we shooting? What are we shooting? And how do we schedule it? You know, which is that other aspect of producing movies. And that's where I first met them. And then later in Mobile, Alabama, I was actually running the set you know, doing the chores of the first AD. And the first AD was doing the work of the second AD because it was such a complicated shoot from the point of view of principal cast, extras, children, effects, the whole continuity of it going together that he wanted to do that. And he also felt that I had the temperament and patience to deal with the personalities around the camera, which is sort of another story. I tend to be a more patient guy and perhaps a little bit more politic than he was. And so Hal and Matthew were invited down to Mobile. And if you went back and looked at Close Encounters, they were the first two characters to walk off the mothership after it lands in the Box Canyon. They were World War II bomber pilots who had been absconded away by the aliens and were coming back to Earth again now. You know, what was it then? Like, you know, 35 years later. So I got to work with them then. And I think Matthew got to see what my work was like as an AD. And when he went to do Corvette Summer, he hired me. And it was pretty remarkable. I think I was one of the youngest first assistant directors ever in the Directors Guild at the time. Yeah, so in late spring of 77, I went to the Lucasfilm production office on the Universal lot. And I remember walking into Gary's office to say hello, because I hadn't seen him in a while, and to check in and see what was up. And he showed me these production stills from Star Wars. And they were finished stills, so it was not only actual photography, but they had also taken stills from the film with, you know, some of the matte painting and other things like that. And I was just completely knocked out, you know, by what I had seen. And I just knew, I knew what a good filmmaker George was. I knew Gary was a good producer. I knew John Williams was involved. I didn't yet know any of the British-based production crew, but I knew Harrison because I worked with Harrison on American Graffiti in the conversation. So I knew what a good actor he was. I didn't know carry yet. But, you know, the little that I knew of the movie, I was just like, whoa, this looks great. Just like, I can't wait to see it. And I remember the morning in May of 77, I got up early and went to, uh, you know, like a 12 noon or 10 o'clock show right after the picture opened. And I was, you know, completely, you know, knocked my socks off, you know, to be sitting in the theater, not knowing what to expect. And here comes the crawl you know, in a galaxy far, far away. And then you've got this deep, you know, rumble of one of the star destroyers coming in over your head, 
you know, which is a beautiful piece of, you know, cinematic framing. People don't expect stuff to come from the top. They always expect it to either to come from the bottom or moving left to right and how, you know, how brilliant it was to come over the top of frame. And all of a sudden it was like, whoa, let's sit back. This is going to be fun. And it was, you know, Star Wars is just this, uh, you know, this great experience. There have been other movies that I've seen in the theaters too that I've loved as well. But that is a, you know, I don't only work in the movie business. I'm a big, I'm a geek and a fan as well. You know, I love great movie experiences. You know, and it's just sort of like, you know, I all, you know, remember 2001: A Space Odyssey, and I, you know, remember the David Lean movies when I was growing up. You see these big spectaculars like Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge Over the River Kwai, and you know, stuff like that. You know, it's great stuff. Great stuff. So uh, I would urge anyone who hasn't seen any of the Star Wars movies in a theater, if you get the opportunity to go to a theater and see them, any of them, you know, especially one, two and three, you know, of which you have to go see Empire because it's my favorite. I think it's, you know, best of all of the Star Wars movies, you know, for lots of different reasons. But, uh, you know, they're really wonderful to see in a big theater and, you know, find the biggest theater possible with the best sound system. And, Put yourself right in the middle of the theater, get there early, you know, find that best seat, which is, you know, with your eyes at, you know, midpoint to the screen, you know, so you're not like looking up or down too much. You're just like dead level to that big screen and, you know, grab a big, you know, tub of popcorn and sit back and have a good time. You know, it's really, really great fun. Before we depart the quarantine pandemic section of this interview, do you have any advice for the writers who are listening? who are, you know, stuck at home, obviously writing is already a solitary job. But for those who are maybe struggling a little bit more because they're stuck inside and maybe lacking in inspiration, are there words of wisdom you have for those who are maybe trying to find that inspiration? You know, if you're blocked, get up and get away from your desk, you know, and go do something completely different. You know, it's funny, whenever I'm, I have a lot of my best ideas in the shower, to tell you the truth. And so I would, you know, I tell you to go take a hot shower. It's funny, and I've read other, you know, studies about people having creative inspiration while there's hot water running over them. And I don't think it's necessarily been figured out, but it's true. But then the other thing I would say is get away and just do something completely different. So you're away from your story because your brain works subconsciously to figure problems out that you might not even realize. And, you know, I know that's true for me personally, because I enjoy puzzles. You know, I do the New York Times crossword puzzle. I do some of the other puzzles as well, like the letterbox puzzles and, you know, different solving puzzles and whatnot, and the NPR Sunday puzzle, and I'll think about stuff. And it's funny, sometimes I'll think about it before I go to bed, and I'll be completely stumped, and I'll wake up the next morning, and I'll have an answer. It's like, hey, go figure. Where did that come from? I wasn't dreaming about it, but sometimes there are parts of your brain that work on things when you're not even you know, realizing that you're problem solving. So it's particularly true of you know, trying to you know, craft something or come up with a new idea or whatever. And then the other thing I would suggest is you know, go watch a movie. You know, it's like, you know, go you know, find out what other people have done and borrow from them. And don't think that great filmmakers don't do that because they do. I know they do. I've worked with them. You know, they know exactly what they're doing. And they go back to great source material and they borrow ideas or scenes or, you know, conflicts or resolutions or whatever. The other thing that's also nice about it is that when you're 
you're feeling blocked or if you're in the dumps or something, it's a good way to reinvigorate yourself. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was, I don't know if this is particularly applicable, but I was working on warning signs, which I'm happy to talk about. We made it in 1985. That's 35 years ago. And it's a pandemic story. And I've been trying to get people to go see this movie again because we kind of got screwed over by distribution and the change of regime at the studio when we made the movie. But it's a wonderful story about a small Utah community where there's what they think is an agrogenetics lab, but it's not. It's a germ warfare lab. I mean, they are doing agrogenetics. They are trying to develop better corn with higher yields and, you know, insect proof and things of that nature. But there's this one lab in the bottom of the building that's working on germ warfare. And there's an accident and the bug gets loose and people start getting sick and they call on the government and they institute a particular protocol, which is they seal the building and nobody on the inside can get out. Nobody on the outside can get in. But the people on the outside don't know that the people on the inside are dying. And they also don't know that they're doing germ warfare. And the people on the inside are finding it out as well, that why is everybody getting sick out and why are the doors locked and why can't we get out? It's sort of the evil beauty of this particular disease that they've created genetically is that it infects the rhinencephalon center of the brain, which is the rage center. So rather than having to kill your enemy, they kill themselves. They kill each other. So it's, you know, really insidious. But, you know, eventually they save the day and, you know, they figure out what the antidote is and they break back inside and they start injecting people and the good people live and the bad people die. And But again, it is a pandemic story. And you know, when the picture was released, we were greenlit. These are good movie stories. We were greenlit by one regime at 20th Century Fox, and a week before we started photography, they were fired and a new group was brought in. And when a new regime is brought in, you become a political liability. There's much more downside for a new regime than there is upside. So they tend to take a hands-off approach with your picture until it's finished. And because it's not one of their movies, they don't necessarily want to attach their name to it unless they're 100% certain it's going to be successful. And if there's any chance that it won't be successful, they dump you. And unfortunately, we got dumped, and I had to struggle mightily to get any kind of marketing, advertising, you know, publicity campaign for the picture. And I went to some great lengths to try and do it, but eventually they kind of dumped us in what was in 1980, picture came out in 85. They dumped us in the dog days of August, which was the worst time to release any movie, like the first weekend in August. This was back in the 80s when release schedules were you know, pretty determined that there were great times to release a movie in dog weekends, and we got the height of the dog weekend. And I used to joke when people told me they saw the movie and they really liked it, and I went, oh, great, you and my mother. you know, And that was the extent of it. But it's a good movie, and I went back and I looked at it again this year, and it's a really good movie for lots of different reasons. We can talk about that later. But I mean, most important of all for the writers who are listening is that it's a great script, and it's also a roller coaster ride. It's like, you know, you open the door and it's nonstop from start to finish. It doesn't hesitate for a second, and you're just you're just on you know this e-ticket ride, and off you go. And it's also very frightening, and you know, good characters and. Hal, who wrote and directed Hal Barwood, did a great job. And, you know, he and Matthew were writing partners. And, you know, just to talk about the two of them before that, they had written Bingo Long and the Traveling All Stars and MacArthur. They also wrote Corvette Summer, which I first met them and worked on. And then they wrote and directed, Matthew directed uh, Dragon Slayer. And 
you know, a bunch of other movies. They were very well-regarded screenwriters and up-and-coming directors. And anyway, very few people saw it. And it's available on Amazon for rental. And I called the head of production at Amazon to see if I could, you know, light a fire under him to get his marketing group interested in, you know, getting the film out there last March when the contagion was really kind of blossoming and getting worse. But I think it was very difficult because they're always very reluctant to push a 35-year-old movie. But, you know, the other films that were doing well at the time were Contagion by Steven Stoderbergh and 21 Days Later by Danny Boyle, which are both, you know, kind of Contagion pandemic movies. Warning Sign was very prescient, you know, all about germ warfare and pandemics and genetically controlled viruses. And it was pretty wild. So anyway, that's the pandemic story. It's a horror thriller. It's a fun little movie. People have seen it really like it. And anyway, it's available on Amazon and a group out of Oregon did a Blu-ray DVD release with an hour interview with me and another hour interview with Hal. And they were off selling DVDs of the film. And it's got very good notices when, you know, that DVD was re-released, which was, you know, I felt good about it. I always thought it was a good film, you know, but it's hard to get a good film out there when nobody knows it's there. Also, we got a very good review from Richard Schickel of Time Magazine, who used to be, you know, one of the, you know, premier movie reviewers back in the mid-80s. He was like the, you know, equivalent of, you know, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker. He was a highly regarded movie reviewer, and he saw it, and he really liked it. But a couple good reviews didn't quite, you know, as you say, put butts in seats with popcorn in their lap. So it didn't quite work out. But such is the movie business. There's the film to go check out. Please check that movie out. Warning, check out warning. Yeah, go check out. So anyway, back to the point of my story, because I often get distracted (laughs) when I'm gabbing about my movies, is that I was having a particularly tough time with the studio, getting the time and money we needed to finish. And the night before, I had gotten into a huge argument with the vice president of production, who were at the movie studios, or, you know, back in those days of like movie studio factory, they were more known to be the no men than the yes men. They were the guys who could jump up and down and yell and scream at the producers and the directors so that the studio presidents could be the good cop. And these guys were the bad cop. And I got into a very bad argument with this guy the night before because we were shooting a scene and he wanted me to pull the plug. And I said, I can't pull the plug. I need this scene to finish the movie. If I don't shoot the scene, I haven't got a movie. You know, it's the most crucial part of the movie. It's like the turning point of the beginning, you know, of the the second act where, you know, the sheriff goes to the disaffected biologist who's an ex-alcoholic and talks him into coming back to rescue everybody inside. And if I don't shoot that sequence, I don't have a hinge between act two and act three. It's like, we haven't got a movie. But these guys are usually not movie guys. They're like production guys, you know, and you're like talking story to production guys and, you know, they don't give a shit. They just say, you know, pull a plug, be done, you're done, get out of here, close it down, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I said, I want to talk to the president of the studio. You know, and he started yelling at me and I started yelling back at him. And it was an awful night, you know, on the telephone. But I went out. I got the president of the studio on the phone and I said, I need to shoot this sequence, you know, and I talked to him like a producer, you know, like I haven't got a movie. And he said, "Okay, go ahead, go do it. Be quick. Do it. Anyway, so I won the battle in that sense. But it was still, you know, it was fine. You know, it's part of the getting calluses on your skin when you deal with a movie studio you know, as an independent producer, as opposed to a studio producer, so to speak. So anyway, we shot late that night. I woke up, we had a later call that day. I was sitting in a hotel room in LA because that's where I was staying at that point in time. 
and a movie came on, and I started watching it. I'm trying to remember what it was. I don't remember which one, but I think it was about making movies of some sort. Anyway, I just started watching it. I just so thoroughly enjoyed it, watching this film, that I completely got reinvigorated and you know, just remembered what the important part of the experience was. You know, which was the, you know, it's about what's on the screen. That's what counts. You know, it wasn't anything else. So from that writer's block point of view, it's sort of like, you know, go watch a movie. Go watch another movie. Go watch a movie that you love. Go light that fire under yourself again to get your creative juices flowing. You know, remember why it is that you want to do this, which is something that we forget. We get bogged down. I mean, it's funny. It's not much different than marriage counseling. When marriage counselor says, why don't you remember why you two fell in love? You know, oh, yeah, okay. That's a good idea. You know, after, you know, 10 or 15 years of marriage and a husband and a wife aren't getting along and bickering each other and the marriage counselor says, oh, well, tell me why you guys got married. And because all they're trying to do is reignite to you about those feelings that you once had to take you back there again to realize that what you're feeling right now may be quite petty. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but, you know, that would be helpful to me. It's like, go back and figure out what it was that you like, you know, go watch a movie that you love or talk to another writer. They're all common experiences. Change the channel, <laughs> what I say. Just change the channel. You know, get yourself out of whatever, you know, we all fall down our individual rabbit holes all the time. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flicker and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre, and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flicker and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Jim, I would love to, before we even get into process, you've had a long career and a very impressive career, and you've had a lot of different roles. Is there a high-level overview of how you could summarize kind of how you went from working with George on American Graffiti all the way up to this point where you've been a creative executive and worked with all these directors? Yeah, I yeah. would say that the overview is that I kind of started on the bottom. I you know, knew a little bit about movie making from an educational school you know, point of view, but not necessarily about movie making from a professional industry point of view. And having, you know, started on the bottom as a gopher, you know, and the word gopher is go for this, go for that, go for coffee, go for tea, go for, you know, people tell you what to go for and you go for whatever those things. 
I mean, I was kind of lucky that the first picture was American Graffiti, and I got to work with George and Francis Coppola was the executive producer. And, you know, I knew who George was because I had seen THX at 1138, and I knew what a talented filmmaker he was. So, you know, the other joke is I also said the magic words when I went in for my job interview, which is I'll work for free, you know. And they said, oh, that's okay. We'll pay you $10 a day. And I said, oh, no, it's okay. And they said, no, that's all right. Well, they did, and they actually wound up paying me a little bit more than that. But that was 1972. So, I mean, from one point of view, I was 19 and I was fortunate enough that I, you know, could take some time off and go to work for such little money, but it, it launched my career, fortunately. But the process that I'm sort of speaking of is that I started as a, you know, production assistant and then became an assistant director trainee in the Director's Guild and then worked on the conversation essentially as a second assistant director. There were two second ADs. It was a great experience to work with Francis, who's such a great filmmaker, and all those great actors who were on the movie, you know, Gene Hackman and Terry Garr and John Cazal, and, you know, work with great technical crews. You know, Haskell Wexler shot American Graffiti, and Haskell started on a conversation, and then, you know, Bill Butler came in and took over. And after that, I had a chance to go work with Bob Altman, on Thieves Like Us, so it's like the first three pictures out of the gate, I'm working with these great directors. And the higher up the ladder you go, sort of the closer you get to camera, where you can actually see what a filmmaker's doing. But, I mean, you still get to read the script and, you know, understand what's happening, but, you know, the closer you are to camera, the better it is. And after all that, I had a chance to, I went in for an interview on the streets of San Francisco TV show, which starred Carl Malden and Michael Douglas. Because I had gotten into the Director's Guild through this back door when Coppola made the conversation. He worked out a deal with the DGA to hire two assistant director trainees from the San Francisco Bay Area who didn't have to go through the traditional DGA trainee program in L.A. by taking that you know, Air Force pilot psychological aptitude test that they were giving to all of them to find out if you had the right sort of psychological you know, skill set and mentality to be an assistant director trainee. And... So I got in that way, and because they were shooting in San Francisco, I went in to meet the production managers to basically say to him, hi, I'm here, this is what I've done, and I'm available if you ever need me to come in and work you know, part-time on big days or a few days a week or whatever. And he said, oh, great, you start Monday, you're full-time. And it was like, what? I was like, I wasn't looking for a full-time job. But as it turned out, you know, it was a great way to learn about movie making. I worked on 46 episodes. There's a difference between TV and feature films. There was then. I mean, there can be now, depending on budget, which is TV is wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You know, line it up, shoot it, and move on. You're moving really quickly because the budgets are tight and the schedules are even tighter and you're out there. You know, I mean, we were an hour show. It was like, you know, what was it back then? 50, 55 page scripts and seven days of shooting. You're out knocking off eight pages of work every day. And it's very, very quick. There are very few luxuries. You know, and that's the way TV sort of looks like it did, you know, before the advent of Showtime and HBO and all that. But the other great treat for me is that I got to work with some great directors. I actually worked with Dick Donner, who, you know, directed all the Superman movies back when he was a TV director. Altman used to be a TV director, and lots of directors back then started out in television and then moved on to features. And the other big treat was that I got to work with Carl Malden and Michael Douglas. And working with Carl in retrospect was like, I mean, Carl was one of the great actors of American filmmaking. You know, I mean, if you look at the work that he's done over the years and you look at that body of work and all the different pictures, 
and all the people that he's worked with and all the performance he was in. And this was stuff that was not apparent to me when I started, but was, you know, something that I learned as time went by to go watch this guy work, you know, and to be, you know, the thing about working on a movie that's so much fun, which is really spoiling, is that when you're by the camera and you're watching these people work, I mean, you're like 10 feet away from like some of the greatest actors in the world. I mean, you know, you get to say, oh, I'll go to Broadway and I'll sit in the audience and you're 50 feet away from somebody who's projecting to an audience of three or 400 people. But when you're on a movie set and you're 10 feet away from like Carl Malden or Michael Douglas or some of the actors that came up to work on the show as guest actors, because Carl brought a lot of great people up with him, you know, to come do guest appearances and whatnot. What a treat that is. I mean, I still have these, you know, great memories of watching the scene when I was on Coming Home and I was you know, running the set one day, and I was alongside Hal Ashby on one side, and I'm watching a scene play with John Voight and Jane Fonda. And I'm watching the two of them in this dramatic scene, and I'm like eight feet away from both of them, or 10 feet away from both of them. And I thought to myself, God, what a, look at this, what a treat this is. And then when the scene was over, they looked at each other, and they talked, and they said to Hal, we're going to do the scene again, but we're going to change parts. Jane said, I'm going to do John's line. John said, I'm going to do Jane's line. And they just, Changed the parts because the way the scene worked, it could play either way. And Hal was the kind of director who was like, okay, go for it. You know, Hal was a wonderful director, very cool guy and very laid back. And he said, yeah, great idea. Let's try it. You know, and so they ran, and I got to watch these two great actors run the scene again. Anyway, so back to the evolution of my career is that, you know, I started on the set. So I started with the filmmakers and with the filmmaking process and being able to read the scripts and understand how the, you know, a written word gets translated into a production on the screen. And I was able to do that by you know, being production assistant, assistant director trainee, second assistant director, then a first assistant director where you're by the camera all the time. And then from there, the next step for me was to kind of move higher up the production ladder where you're supervising all of the crews and the units. And you know, when I became an associate producer on Empire and you know, and then went on and worked on Jedi as a co-producer. And, you know, the great thing about those two movies is that, you know, I first learned about visual effects on Close Encounters when visual effects was just breaking out, you know, as far as being an add-on to the motion picture experience. Because before that, it was like, well, what else was there? Not much, you know, yeah, there was King Kong and other things like that, and matte paintings done, you know, but before 2001, A Space Odyssey, there wasn't a whole lot in the way of like, let's go somewhere we've never been before. And Close Encounters and Star Wars were both made at the same time, both in 76, they were shot and released in 77. And on Close Encounters, I was working with Doug Trumbull, who did all the work on 2001, A Space Odyssey. And Doug was a great guy. I really enjoyed working with Doug. It was a whole nother level of filmmaking that was just beginning to come past. And then they did Star Wars, and then after Star Wars, the visual effects was done at ILM in Van Nuys, California, down in L.A. But after it was so successful, George decided to move ILM up to Marin County, up in Northern California. And that's when Gary and George came back to me and said, how'd you like to come work on this movie? And it was like, okay, sure. You know, and I went to work on Star Wars, and one of the first things that I had to do was to move ILM up from Southern California and hire all the people. To come work on the picture and create a facility out of an empty warehouse, you know. And plus, you know, we had to launch the movie at the same time and work with you know all of the great artistic talent who was on the movie, like you know Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston, and then all the live action people, 
you know, the goal of the movie was how do we make Empire, you know, greater than Star Wars was. And it was also a more vast effort than Star Wars because we were going to more planets and doing more things and pushing the visual effects envelope like it had never been pushed before in the work that we were doing. I mean, it's quite remarkable that we, you know, the team pulled everything off and that Empire turned out to be such a great movie. You know, most of the time would always say, oh, yeah, you're going to do a sequel. You'll be lucky if you do 50 or 60 percent of the original, you know, picture. But I think that Empire was more successful. It may have been, I don't remember, you know, equal to or slightly lesser, you know, more in, you know, financial commercial success than Star Wars was. And so then I had sort of, you know, stepped up to becoming, you know, managing you know, from a producerial point of view, lots of people, you know, groups of, you know, one, 200, 250 people with multi-million dollar budgets and whatnot. You know, I was still quite young, you know, getting gray quickly and losing sleep and weight, you know, all the stresses that come along with that sort of stuff. And then after the two Star Wars movies, I then sort of became a producer and went off and next thing was actually work with Hal and Matthew, who I spoke about earlier on a great movie called The Grit which was like a precursor to The Terminator, but we never got it made. And it was like another Hollywood story. We were working with the Lad Company. They just released the right stuff. The right stuff went into the tank, and they ran out of money, and we couldn't get the grid made. You know, So it never happened. But it was a wonderful time travel movie, just a great time travel movie. But it didn't quite get made, and then we did Warning Sign at Fox. And then after that, I you know produced a few more movies. I did this Jillian Armstrong movie called Fires Within. It was originally called Little Havana, but we changed the title to Fires Within. Jillian, very good Australian director who was working in the United States, and we made this film with Jimmy Smits and Greta Skocki and Vincent D'Onofrio. And after that, I went to work at Fox at Sony a few years later, and they were launching these two new movie divisions, these interactive movies and IMAX 3D movies. And that was exciting to me because it was like, oh, this is something new and kind of cutting edge. And this is back in the early 90s. And you know, it was sort of running off the interactive games stuff. So that was quite exciting because then I was, on, as I like to say, I was on the other side of the desk. So I learned a lot about movie making from the studio point of view. And that was very informative because the, all the other times I was always a seller and now I was a buyer. You know, and buyers are the ones who say yes and no to movies. And I got the chance to work with some great directors. I worked with Jean Jacques Anneau. And Jean Jacques, you know, for people who know of him, directed The Bear and Quest for Fire and Name of the Rose. And he's a great French filmmaker. And he was always, you know, always wanted to do something new and different that had never been done before. So, what we tried to do with this first IMAX 3D movie we made, which was called Wings of Courage, that John Jacques, you know, it was basically his story. Anyway, there were these, you know, 19 teens, 1920s, they were flying biplanes from Santiago, Chile, across the Cordillera, the Andes, to Rio to deliver the mail. So, what's great about this for IMAX 3D? Well, very few people had seen IMAX 3D before, and it was very different than the 3D you're seeing in the theaters now, which is like phony 3D. This is real 3D, where we shot with 3D cameras, like two cameras with a beam splitter, photographing all this material. And so to make it particularly exciting, the flying stuff was remarkable. We put these cameras up in the air on helicopters, 
and shot all of these scenes so that when you're sitting in the movie theater and you're watching a 3D image of flying over the peaks of mountains, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, take the experience of sitting in a theater watching The Empire Strikes Back when the snow speeders are flying over Hoth, you know, the Norwegian glacier, you know, you know, and you're like, whoa, you know, and take that and multiply it by three because now you're watching it in 3D with these beautiful IMAX 3D glasses that they gave to everybody who went to the theater. And it wasn't just 3D visual, it was 3D sound. So that you had sound that would go around your head in 360 degrees because you had these like headsets that you were wearing. I don't know if you've ever seen those goggles before, but they were remarkable. So it was this great experience. And John Jock made this wonderful movie. It's about this, you know, pilot who goes, takes off in bad weather, crashes, and has to walk out of the mountains. And he carries the mail with him while he's doing it. You know, he's such a dedicated guy. And from the story point of view, it's a guy who walks it out and the whole way as he's walking, he keeps thinking about his wife and how much he loves her and all he wants to do is get back to her. And he eventually succeeds. So it's quite a good movie. And then another one was made after that. I stayed there for a few years and that was great to be on the inside. And then I got an offer to go to work at Electronic Arts, which was and still is one of the preeminent, you know, video game companies. And I worked there for a couple of years, and that turned out to be a bust. Unfortunately, I should never have done that. You know, you look back on your career, and you have pluses and minuses, and that was a minus for me, you know, because I was never a gamer, you know, and gamers are gamers, and all gamers want to do is shoot stuff up. You know, it's like, let's just shoot it up, you know, and my world was story, story, story. But the other part of becoming a producer and whatnot is that you begin to learn about the other phases of the business, which are, you know, pre-production stories, you know, development, getting pictures set up, getting cast, you know, it's that whole other end of movie making that people who go to the theaters don't have a sense for, which is like that business end. It's like, well, how is it done? Where do the stories come from? How do you get the cast involved? How are the agents and the lawyers and the studios and all these different aspects play in? And then, you know, as a producer, you also begin to learn about those other aspects beyond, you know, creative development, production, production, then you get into post-production, you know, which I had learned about and learned well about on the Star Wars movies. But beyond that, you get into the aspect of, you know, marketing, publicity, and distribution. And it's one thing to have a movie and another thing to have nobody see it. And I learned about that, unfortunately, on Warning Sign. So that's the other aspect of it is like, okay, you got a film, let's go out and make sure we get people in the theater to go watch it. So you've got all of these different aspects of filmmaking, you know, they go into getting a movie scene or you know, getting anything seen, you know, so many filmmakers, you know, early on, they just think, oh, we'll just go make the movie. Well, it's one thing to go make the movie, but if nobody's going to watch it, you know, it's like, forget it. You just wasted two years of your life. It's like, you know, down the toilet it goes. You know, you've got to go out and work those departments to make sure you can get people as excited, you know, about selling your movie as you were about making it, which is hard to do, particularly within a studio system. It's very tough to do that. And so if you kind of look at the run of my career it's gone in all those you know different directions so that's i think that makes one a well-rounded you know producer being able to understand all of those different aspects and how everything fits together thank you so much for listening to the writer experience if you enjoyed the episode today please leave a rating a review and a comment on itunes you can also check us out on instagram at writer experience and twitter and facebook at writer exp the Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. 
Music by Kevin McLeod.